All right, so today, continuing on in our journey through the Bible from 30,000 feet soaring through scriptures, we've got the New Testament now that we're getting into. Woo, yes. We got a little bit of excitement. That's good. Well, bless you right there. Man is excited in the front row, sneezing convulsively with joy, excitement. So um, before we get into it here, uh, we're going to do a little, um, it's been a while since we watched one of the videos from the Bible Project, and so we're going to look at one of those here today, and um, this video is really just kind of giving a, a view of what the New Testament is really all about and how it connects to the Old Testament and how it all weaves together. So we're going to cover that right here, uh, right now. So cool, huh? Isn't that great? So it's been just a lot of fun going through this Bible, soaring through Scripture, taking a real um, kind of overhead view of the big picture as we've been talking a lot about here and just seeing how this all fits together here and really all points to Jesus, even from the Old Testament, because where the Old Testament leaves off there in Malachi, you know, talking about um, this messenger that is to come that we saw in, Jer in, in Malachi chapter three, um, speaking about John the Baptist coming, and then also we see him being mentioned in a sense, Elijah the prophet that is to come in Malachi 4 verse 5. Again, I think speaking of John the Baptist that was coming to prepare the way, but not just a messenger to prepare the way, but to reveal who is to be the way, and that is Jesus the Messiah. And so Malachi, I didn't talk a lot about that at the end of Malachi with Elijah coming because a lot of people read that and they go, what is this talking about? Well, Jesus, remember, he said about John the Baptist that uh, there's one like Elijah here, in a sense, a greater than Elijah, speaking of John the Baptist who is preparing the way, but then also, I believe, having another far fulfillment because I believe Elijah will indeed come again before the day of the Lord as one of the two witnesses that we see of in Revelation. And so... Those are some of the things that we saw the Old Testament leaving off with, but now into the Gospels, we see that narrative just again kind of picking up here, this one that is coming, who is to be the way. And it's what well, the whole Bible is all about, you know, just pointing to Jesus. Because we don't have two Testaments in the sense because, you know, the Old Testament was kind of dated and, and broken and we need a New Testament. No, the Old Testament was not broken. The Old Testament was, again, God's plan coming together. And now the New Testament is seeing that plan even more so unfolding in and through the person, Jesus Christ. It's been said that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. Or you can say what the Old Testament anticipates, the New Testament authenticates what the Old Testament predicts, the New Testament presents. You see, Jesus is that scarlet thread that weaves all the way through Scripture, holding it together in a sense. It's one complete package that's that unveiling of God's redemptive story for humanity. And like I'm saying here, it's all been provided through the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was all predicted, pointed to in the Old Testament. And now as we move into the New Testament, we begin to see the Messiah, come and emerge and reveal himself and reveal this great plan of redemption of God. So the New Testament begins with some very familiar books, 
for us, known as the Gospels. I think it's probably the, you know, the books that would be the most read of the Bible, I'd say, that people gravitate to a lot because it's great to read the, the stories, the narrative, the different acts of Jesus Christ. And so the Gospels are here, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that word gospel simply means good news. That's what we're reading here. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what the world has been waiting for, that the Messiah has come and that he comes with salvation for all. That's good news, isn't it? So that's why we have the gospels here. And we have four gospels. Those first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels. And that word um, synoptic really simply means it comes from two Greek words, sin and optikos, meaning to see together. So when we have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it just means that they're all looking through a common kind of lens here. They all look at giving that account of Jesus, providing a synopsis, a common summary. Now the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel, that we're enjoying, I hope we're enjoying on Sunday mornings here. John's Gospel takes quite a bit of a, a, a different view than the Synoptic Gospels do because the Synoptic Gospels all contain very similar material between them. It seems like they all borrowed very much from one another. But then John's gospel contains about 90% unique information and accounts. And we'll get into that next week here more specifically. But each gospel sheds some light on the person of Jesus Christ, on who Jesus is. They're not contradictory, but they're complementary with one another. They all write with a common purpose to share the, the mission and the message of the Messiah, of Jesus, who he is, what, what he did. And part of why we have four Gospels is to bring that diverse perspective and witness of Jesus. Just like at a, at a trial or account that you want to prove or authenticate, it's important to have varying witnesses that will back what you say. If you just have one witness, it's like, okay, all right, there's some, there's some legitimacy there. But suddenly when you begin to add more witnesses that are all kind of saying the same thing, it's also like, well, that seems to be very much proven and authenticated than what you are saying. It's backing up what you're saying. So we have four gospels, four eyewitness accounts now of Jesus. And each writer backs and solidifies ultimately what the others are saying. And not only do the authors of each gospel provide a, a unified, stronger case for Christ, but they also build off of what each other is saying and portray Jesus now with a bit of a, a different perspective and more so writing to a different audience. So it's not that they're saying anything differently, but they're writing with a different mindset or a different idea and, and, and audience in mind. All right. So Matthew now, he wrote primarily to the Jews and he wrote to proclaim Jesus as the king of the Jews. Mark, however, he wrote primarily to the Romans to proclaim Jesus as the suffering servant. Luke wrote just to the Gentile world, the Greeks, and because the Greeks were fascinated with Plato's ideal man, Luke writes to proclaim Jesus as the Son of Man. And John wrote, ultimately, to all men with this universal salvation. He wrote to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in and through his name. Now, many have seen in the Gospels even um, a, a parallel now to what we saw with the symbols of the, the tribes of Israel as they camped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And as we went through our Old Testament study, especially in the book of Numbers and the likes, we saw how the camps were all divided up. Twelve tribes camped around the tabernacle 
And the main tribe that was leading that group was positioned there. Now, what we see very interestingly is the tabernacle there in the middle of the yellow. As the tribes were camped out in their groups of threes, you see the number of the total of tribes. And you see that it would have formed the shape of a, a cross here. But then with Ephraim, the main tribe there to the west, he was represented. Each tribe had that signet, that banner that represented them. So Ephraim was represented by a calf, Dan, an eagle, Judah, a lion, and Reuben was, was symbolized by the man. And then as we saw in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel sees the vision in, in the first chapter, he sees the cherubim with these, these four faces, right? The four faces of, of a, a lion, a, a calf, a man, and an eagle. And then John in Revelation, Revelation 4, sees the four living creatures, all identifying the same way. And so many have seen the parallel now between the Gospels, where Matthew's Gospel sets out to reveal Jesus as the king, so represented as the lion, right? King of the jungle. Mark's Gospel representing Jesus as a suffering servant, while the ox representing servanthood. Luke's gospel shows Jesus as the son of man, emphasizing his humanity seen in the face of a man. And then John's gospel ultimately reveals the deity of Jesus, that he is the son of God, seen in the eagle here now who soars in the heavens. So again, it's a real correlation and a tie-in among many scriptures and how the gospels all just kind of represent what we've seen elsewhere. Very interesting. So the gospels now just really become that strong testimony to all of the person of Jesus Christ and, and the reason why he came. The purpose of Jesus, the things that he did, and why he did them. Now, we mentioned before that as, as we move out of the Old Testament, come in the New Testament, it's, it's known as that intertestamental period because it was a period of 400 years. 400 years where there was no recorded prophetic voice of God. There was no activity really seen from heaven. It was known as the 400 silent years. A very interesting period of time. But yet what we see is that there was indeed a lot of activity going on. And it was all setting the stage now for the greatest introduction the world was to see. And that was through Jesus Christ. It's a great lesson for us that though we may go through seasons in our lives where we think, Man, God, you just seem like you're so distant, so silent. I just feel like I'm, I'm all alone. We never have to worry that God isn't active because God is carrying out his plans and his purposes. Even when we think he's absent or silent, God is at work. And we see through those 400 silent years that God is surely at work and preparing what was to come in a very great way. So here's what's been happening during these 400 years after Malachi and before Matthew. And there's a lot of historians that differ in their dating. So these dates are very approximate, but we'll briefly go through this because there's a lot to kind of see here. But ending off where the, the Jews had returned from Babylon in captivity and returned to their homeland. Well, in 480 BC, Xerxes the Persian was victorious against the Greeks at Thermopylae and was defeated at the Battle of Salamis. Actually, it was a storm that defeated him. That was the last bit of the East for world dominion. 333 BC, out of the west there came that, that goat which Daniel had recorded in the 8th chapter of Daniel. That was Alexander the Great, the goat with the great horn. He led the United Greek forces to victory over the Persians at, at Isis, or Isis, however you say that. 332 BC, Alexander the Great then visited Jerusalem, and he was shown the prophecy of Daniel, which spoke of him, specifically Alexander the Great. Therefore, he spared Jerusalem. 
and Jerusalem was one of the few cities that he ever spared. 323 BC, Alexander died way over in Persia. Apparently he had intended to move the seat of his empire there. Then the world empire, both east and west, was divided among his four generals. 320 BC, Judea was annexed to Egypt by Ptolemy Soter. 312 BC, Seleucus founded the kingdom of the Seleucidae, which is Syria, and he attempted to take Judea. And so Judea became the battleground between Syria and Egypt, and that little country became a buffer state. 203 BC, Antiochus the Great took Jerusalem, and Judea passed under the influence of Syria. 170 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes took Jerusalem and defiled the temple. He had been mentioned in Daniel as that little horn, and he's been called the Nero Jewish history. So he created a lot of trouble. But then in 166 BC, Mattathias, the priest of Judea, raised a revolt against Syria. That was the beginning of the Maccabean re- uh, period. Probably the nation of Israel has never suffered more during this era, and they were never more heroic than during this interval. Judas Maccabeus, whose name means the hammer, was the leader who organized the revolt. Then in 63 BC, Pompey the Roman took Jerusalem and the people of Israel, passed under the rulership of a new world power. They were under Roman government at the time of the birth of Jesus and throughout the period now of the New Testament. 40 BC, the Roman Senate appointed Herod to be king of Judea. Okay, so that's a Herod that's ruling during the time of Jesus. 37 BC, Herod took Jerusalem and slew Antigonus, the last of the Maccabean king priests. 31 BC, Caesar Augustus became emperor of Rome. 19 BC, the construction of the Herodian temple was begun. The building had been going on quite a while when our Lord was born and was still continuing during the time of the New Testament. And then around 4 BC, our Lord Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So take a deep breath. That's a lot of history there. But I say all that to say, and that was all um, from taken from J. Vernon McGee. So uh, if you didn't like anything there, take it up with him. But um, a, a really good synopsis of, of history to show, man, those 400 years was active. There was a lot of history unfolding, but not only a lot of history, a lot of work that the Lord was preparing to bring everything into play. Because during that span of the Greek and the Roman occupations, there were two important political religious groups that were emerging in Israel, the Pharisees and then also the, the, um, the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees were ones that added to the law of Moses through oral tradition and eventually considered their own laws more important than God's. While Christ's teachings often agree with the Pharisees, he railed against their hollow legalism and lack of compassion. So during, again, all the, um, you know, Antioch is coming against uh, the Jews and, and defiling the temple. Well, it just stirred up the Jews into holiness and purification. The Jews never struggled with idolatry any longer since returning from Babylon. So the Lord was doing a work in them. But, but yeah, what happened is because they, they tried to uphold the law to such a degree, they began, be, began to idolize the law. They made an idol out of their very law that God had given them. And so we see that kind of opposition and conflict there in Jesus' ministry between him and the Pharisees because they tried to uphold the law so much, but they ended up just becoming hypocritical in, in doing so. So the other group, the Sadducees, represented the, the aristocrats, the, the wealthy, the Sadducees who wielded power through the Sanhedrin, rejected all but the Mosaic books of the Old Testament. They refused to believe in in the miraculous, like the resurrection, and they were generally shadows of the Greeks whom they greatly admired. So the 
events now of that intertestamental period really, as I said, set the stage for the arrival of Jesus Christ. It had a profound impact now on the Jewish people. Both Jews and pagans from other nations were becoming dissatisfied with religion in general. The pagans were beginning to question the validity of polytheism. Romans and Greeks were drawn from their mythologies toward the Hebrew scriptures. Now they've been accessible in both Greek or Latin. The Jews, however, kind of were despondent. Once again, they were conquered, oppressed, and polluted. Hope was running low. Faith was, was even lower. They were convinced that now the only thing that could save them in their faith was the appearance of the Messiah. So they're kind of on high alert. They're looking forward to the Messiah, thinking this is the only thing that's going to be able to, you know, help us and, and deliver us from this Roman bondage that we're under. Not only were people primed and ready for the Messiah, but God was moving in other ways as well because the Romans now through this period of time that they had, had come onto the scene were developing great roadways. So now roads are reaching between cities like never before and it provided just great accessibility now for the gospel to go forth. You see, God is at work preparing the way. As Malachi left off, the messenger was coming to provide and, and prepare the way. Well, God was the one that was preparing the way in allowing all these things to come into being. Not only were there great roadways being made by the Romans, but now there was a common language on the scene, Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament. There was a fair amount of peace and freedom now just to travel and move about. So again, it just lent way for not only the Messiah coming, but for the advancement now of the gospel that would be emerging through all this. God's timing for what he does is always Right on time, wouldn't you say? It's always perfect timing. So now Matthew's theme, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we're going to cover Matthew and Mark here briefly here tonight, but Matthew's theme in writing this Gospel is the kingdom of heaven. That term is used some 31 times in this book, and the term kingdom of God is seen another five times. You see, if we're going to have a kingdom established, we need to have a king, right? And Matthew sets out to show the lineage of the king, to prove that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, that he is the Messiah they've been looking for. He is the right king here. So Matthew sets out to do just that. In fact, the whole book can be broken down into the steps of his kingship. Look at how the outline in Matthew kind of breaks down for us. First of all, we see the preparation for the king. We see the principles of the kingdom. We see proofs of the kingly power, parables of kingdom life, and the passion and power of the king. Now Matthew was one of the disciples that was called by Jesus, right? Matthew is also known as Levi in the Bible. He was a tax collector, and tax collectors were people that were not too well liked by those in Israel, because to be a tax collector meant that you were kind of partnering with Rome, collecting taxes on their behalf. So you were seen as somewhat of a traitor, but yet in Jesus calling Matthew, he shows that he's reaching out to all people, all right? Now, I can just imagine some of these board meetings they had with the disciples got pretty lively here because you got, you got people that were zealots that were on fire for very, very patriotic for Israel, and you got Matthew that was seen as a, a, a traitor in a sense. So I can imagine that these disciples had a, you know, a lot of fun together here and a lot of tension, no doubt. But here's Matthew now, this man that's called by Jesus, becomes one of the followers of Jesus. He leaves all behind, follows Jesus. And Matthew 
wrote his gospel most likely around, we're not sure when exactly uh, the dating for this um, gospel is, but probably around 60 to 70 AD. Some believe maybe a bit of an earlier date, but let's say 60 to 70 AD was when this gospel was written. And Matthew begins, chapter 1 here, with the genealogy of Jesus. See, again, if he's going to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne, he's got to give the credentials of Jesus and his rightful place to the throne. And it all comes through the line of David. So Matthew records this lineage all going back to David. And not only back to David, but going back to Abraham. All right? Their great hero of the faith. One of their great um, forefathers here. Now Matthew and Luke are the only two gospels to present a genealogy. John does in, in, in a way though very differently than Matthew and Luke. So Matthew and Luke really stand out as the two that give genealogies of Jesus. Matthew starts his genealogy from Abraham, as any good Jew would. Remember, Matthew is writing to the Jews specifically. So he goes from Abraham to David, and down the line of David through all of the various kings. Luke and, and, and Matthew's genealogy differ from David down to Joseph, because Matthew follows Joseph's line of David, Jesus' legal right to the throne, whereas Luke follows Mary's line to David, which is Jesus' natural link to the throne. Remember, Joseph is not his, you know, biological father, all right? But he had adopted in, in a sense, and so it shows that he had a legal right to the throne. And Matthew breaks down this genealogy of Jesus. He summarizes the various big events that are important in Jewish history. Look at verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, again, just to be clear, a lot of people look at Jesus Christ as first name, last name, right? You know, and, and put his middle initial H in there, and that's whatever that, you know, Yahweh, whatever. But it, Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. Christ means Messiah. So when we see Jesus, who is called Christ, it's saying, Matthew's saying, this is Jesus, who is the Messiah, all right? And then in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So we see these kind of three big events that are, are highlighted with them all being divided up by 14 generations. So again, just shows this kind of natural symmetry by dividing it up these ways. Now, why 14? The simplest explanation is as, as Cale Barker said, is that um, 14 observes the numerical value of David. In, in, in Hebrew writing, all of the letters all have, a, again, a, um, a value system to it, uh, a designated number to it. So the numerical value of David, taking the D and the V and the D, right, no vowels, so taking that name, it adds up to 14. And by the symbolism, Matthew stresses the promised son of David, the Messiah, has come. So that's a possible and simple explanation to why 14 are, are given here. Now, one of the key words in, in Matthew's gospel is the term fulfilled. Fulfilled, you'll see that written oftentimes in Matthew's gospel. Matthew referred to more Old Testament books than any New Testament book did. Many Old Testament passages are, are quoted in Matthew's gospel to show that Jesus has fulfilled all that was spoken of the Messiah. Again, to show that Jesus is validated by the way that he fulfilled scripture. 
All right? We've seen a lot of people in history come onto the scene and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Well, great. Let's find out where you're born. Well, I was, you know, I was born down in Los Angeles. Well, er, sorry, you're not the Messiah. Because the Bible says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Right? And, and so you can begin to see by asking people questions that might claim to be the Messiah. Listen, have you fulfilled all these scriptures? Only one has. It's Jesus. And Matthew sets out to show how these scriptures have been fulfilled and Jesus has fulfilled them to show and validate that he is, again, the Messiah, the King, the one that they're waiting for, the one that they're looking for. Now, the Gospel of Matthew ultimately centers around five major discourses. We see, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7. We see the mission discourse where Jesus calls and commissions his disciples, chapter 10. We see the kingdom parables in chapter 13. We see the community discourse or how Jesus begins to show how his people need to walk in this childlike faith in chapter 18. And then we see the Olivet discourse, this eschatological teaching that Jesus gives, end times discussion, chapters 24 and 25. So we're going to tonight just kind of highlight a few of these discourses. Now, much of what Matthew centers on is all revolving around the things that Jesus said. 60% of the book is the recorded words of Jesus. So Matthew really takes time to share the things that Jesus himself said. So centered around these five discourses and teachings that Jesus gives. So turn to Matthew 5. Let's, let's start with the Sermon on the Mount. Let's read here Matthew 5 verse 1 to 2 or sorry verse let's go verse 1 to 12 let's read this whole beatitudes here this is a great passage it says here and seeing the multitudes he went up on a mountain and when he was seated his disciples came to him then he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with what's known as the Beatitudes. It's a, a favorite passage among many. And Jesus builds a theme here. A theme of being, what? Blessed, right? Hey, you want to be blessed? Here's the way to do it. The word blessed comes from that Latin word, beatus, which means happy. Isn't that great? She says, listen, if you want to be happy, here's how you're going to accomplish that. But this idea of being happier is more than just a, a, a feeling of gladness. It was a word that wasn't even used for humans, but one reserved for a state that only the gods could attain to. It's a state of divine joy and perfect happiness. A happiness, a joy that's not related to your circumstances or what you're going through. It's not your feelings because your feelings are going to be up and down. It's about feeling a joy and a happiness that's not based on those other things, but is based on how we live in Christ and for Christ. 
So he says, blessed are the, in other words, he says, you're going to experience this wonderful happiness and joy when you live this kingdom way. All right? That's what the book is all centered around. And Matthew is about the king and this kingdom way. So you're going to be blessed when you live this kingdom way. And Jesus is not talking about the way into the kingdom. What do I need to do, Jesus? What are the requirements I need to do to, to be in this kingdom? No. Rather, Jesus shows the kingdom way. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't a way to salvation, but rather it showed us the righteousness of God and our need for it. Look at, at verse 20 of chapter 20, or sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of people would hear that and go, oh my goodness, I'm done. Because they're looking at the Pharisees and the scribes and looking at this, this act of holiness that they're putting on, where they portrayed themselves as completely righteous and pure and upholding the law completely. And everybody else looked at them and thought, oh, I'm so far from that, I can't do it. Well, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that, in other words, what he's saying is, it's not by what you do. It's not by your righteousness that you're going to enter in the kingdom. It's through the righteousness of Christ. You need the righteousness of God to accomplish this. And so when we need the righteousness of God, we need to recognize that I'm not righteous in myself. That I need help. And that's what Jesus begins to set out for us here ultimately. So what Jesus is doing here, he's teaching about the character of the kingdom. He taught it's a matter of the heart. It's an, it's an attitude. That's why it's called the Beatitudes, right? Here's how you need to be. It's not do attitudes or do actions. It's the way that we are to be. Jesus is a lot more concerned about who we are than what we do. But when we take care of our character, proper conduct is going to follow. Right conduct flows from right character. So in this first section, Jesus teaches that the blessed life, the life that characterizes his kingdom, is about having the right kind of attitudes. Look at these attitudes that we're to have here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You might look at that and go, well, that's kind of weird. What's, what does that mean? It's, it's recognizing your need spiritually that you're poor in spirit. That you're not righteous in yourself. And that you can't do anything to make yourself more righteous. You need another's righteousness. And that's where Jesus comes in. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you begin to see that you are in poverty in and of yourselves. Spiritually. That you need help. And blessed are the poor in spirit because then theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. You see, when we begin to see that we're poor in spirit, that I can't do it on my own to be right with God, to, to make it into the kingdom, to, to get to heaven. I can't do it on my own. What's going to happen? You're going to mourn. Ultimately, you're going to repent. You're going to turn from trying to do it your way and turn to the Lord's way. And when we repent, repent, praise the Lord, we're not repenting without hope. We're repenting because we know that God comes and meets us there. Notice what it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, he goes on to say. When you begin to realize, yeah, there's nothing of worth in me. It's like breaking that word in half. You go, me? Ech. Gross. I've got nothing. I can't put any, any merit on myself here. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the earth. 
It's walking in that humility, you see. And then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, what's going to happen when you begin to empty yourself of self, when you begin to realize there's nothing worth in me that's going to fit me for the kingdom, there's nothing I can bring to the table, I need to empty myself, what's going to happen? Well, when you empty yourself, you're going to get hungry. But you're going to be hungry for the right things. You're going to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, it says here. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are you, because what's going to happen, the Lord's going to fill you then. You're going to be filled. You're going to be quenched. You're going to find what you've truly been striving for, because it's only found in and through Jesus. And then blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Man, when we begin to realize that, I, I'm only going forward to the mercy of God. We receive mercy, we give mercy. We shall be merciful and obtain more mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So the Lord is really identifying this character of the kingdom way, isn't he? In the Beatitudes. The way that we are to be. It's not about doing. It's about who we are to be in our character. Recognizing it's only through the Lord. So, Sermon on the Mount, he continues to go on and reveal the law versus how we're to be now. Right? The law said this, but this is what Jesus now says. He begins to reveal this way of righteousness that's only found in him. That exceeds the law, essentially. So, the Sermon on the Mount really deals with that character of those that are part of the kingdom, that are in Christ, how we're to live. And then, we move from the Sermon on the Mount to look at that next discourse, which is the mission discourse, the calling or the commissioning of the apostles. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. Matthew 10, verse 5. It says, These twelve... Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, it's interesting that he says, Don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Was Jesus not wanting the Gentiles to be a part of the kingdom? Are they included in now as an afterthought? As we get in the book of Acts, God's like going, well, okay, that didn't really work out the way intended here. Let's try now working with the Gentiles. No, this wasn't an afterthought. But the Bible says that the gospel is for the Jew first, Romans 1.16. The promises of the Messiah were given to Israel, and they're given to Israel to bless the whole world. But Israel was lost. They weren't fulfilling the things that God had, had called them to do, right? They're not doing their job. And so after Jesus' resurrection and after the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, the apostles would then be sent into the whole world. Right now, the call is going out once more to Israel to stir them up because they had a role in being a light to the world. So the gospel goes to the Jew first, but it's for all people. And the Jews, in their rejection of the Messiah, then the gospel began to spread. Where we're living now in the Gentile age is age of grace, the church age right now, where the Jews have been set aside to a degree because of their rejection. So he calls these 12, and they go out, and then we see just again, as the book of Acts unfolds, 
uh, many of these are going out, taking the gospel out to the whole world now at that point. Well, then in chapter 13, we see the kingdom parables discourse. Now, what's a parable? We see a lot of parables in the gospels. The Greek word parabole means para, alongside, and bole means to cast. So a parable means to cast alongside or to place one thing alongside another. And so what Jesus is doing when he's using parables is he's placing a truth or a, a spiritual lesson alongside a, an earthly story. Something that was relating to their context in their, in their day. So parables have often been called earthly stories with heavenly meanings. So chapter 13, we've got one here. Chapter 13, the parable of the sower. Look at that, verse 1. A familiar parable. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, Jesus here is giving a, a, a spiritual lesson, but he's using it with just very earthly language. So everybody's thinking about just the sower. Yeah, okay, we understand. A farmer, when he's sowing seed, he's got to be smart. He's got to sow it in good soil, no doubt. But what Jesus is saying is that as the seed of the word of God goes out, it's going to land on different soils. There might be some that respond well to it, but it's just laying on kind of a, a, a rocky path and it gets picked up, you know? Birds come and they devour it. Some fall on, on these stony places. There's not a lot of, uh, of earth where it develops roots, you see. Some people might look like they got all together. They, they've responded to the gospel, but hasn't taken root in their heart, you see. And then they get, you know, it, it just withers away, basically, when the sun comes out. So the Lord is, is explaining this parable to them. Of what it, but as he's saying it, it's a parable. There's a, a spiritual element cast alongside just an earthly story, and the disciples are hearing it going, we don't know what you're talking about. But so Jesus begins to, to break it down. And this is why it's so important to kind of take the word of God and, and, and read through it um, in context. Because in, in other gospels, I don't think it says it here in Matthew's gospel. He, he later explains it in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away. Jesus says elsewhere that the, the seed is the word of God. You see, I've heard people come up, you know, and try to use this parable to say, the seed is speaking of your finances. And when you sow your seed, you're going to reap a hundredfold, maybe 60, maybe 30, but you're going to reap much when you begin to sow that seed of your finances. And I'm sitting here pulling my eyeballs out going, just read on, will you, dude? You're missing it. It's right there explained to us. And so Jesus, you know, breaks it down. He says, this is speaking about the word of God that goes out. And, and some are going to receive it. Some are going to have trouble receiving it and having it stick. But we pray that that seed lands on good soil. Where when it does, it's going to grow up and it's going to 
reproduce itself and become very fruitful in the life of that believer now. So the Lord teaches through many parables here, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the mustard seed, parable of the leaven, and so a lot of parables here that Jesus speaks about. Well, that third discourse is the, or sorry, uh, the, the fourth discourse is the community discourse in chapter 18. Look at that with me here. You see, as the disciples were getting primed for the kingdom, as Matthew's gospel is focused on, and the king, many of them are wondering, well, all right, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I think it's going to be me. I think I'm bound for greatness in the kingdom. I mean, look at me. Look at all that I I'm bringing to the table here. So the disciples are oftentimes getting in disputes over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus now brings this thought process to a screeching halt, or at least he attempts to, in this discourse, because he shows three essentials to the kingdom life. He's going to talk about humility in verses 1 to 14 of chapter 18. He's going to talk about honesty in verses 15 to 20. And he's going to talk about forgiveness in verses 21 to 35. But look at chapter 18. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus is teaching them here that, listen, you need to become childlike. Not childish. You need to become childlike. What's it, what's, what's it mean to be childlike? Well, children are very dependent on others, aren't they? And children oftentimes are, are people of great faith. They're trusting those that are over them, above them. Which just, I mean, you take a child that would just leap off, you know, a, a high height into the arms of their parent without any, any question. They're... They're like, you're going to catch me. I know you're going to catch me, right? I'm going to just fly through the air, and you're going to catch me. And we're like panicking as they're doing so, but they have great faith, right? They're ready to step out like that, and, and they're very dependent. So the Lord's saying, you need to have childlike faith. Children oftentimes are not about, look at me. I'm so wonderful and great. They're just, they're just wanting to be together, have community with one another, play, enjoy themselves. And the Lord's saying, there needs to be that humility. You need to humble yourself like these little children here. That's how Jesus is showing this, this kingdom way again, becoming childlike. And then we see, lastly, the all of it discourse. Now, turn to chapter 24. Jesus begins to break down for his disciples the things that they can be expecting in the near future and in the far future. Look at chapter 24, verse 3. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, in case you're wondering, what does that have to do? Sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, 
pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So the disciples are asking this question now before Jesus. When will these things be? Jesus talked earlier about not one stone will be left on another of the temple. So when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age here? So they ask these questions. Well, Jesus' answer really centers around three things. Deception, disputes, and disasters. Now, he talks about how there's going to be great trouble coming. There will be a lot of deception. Many are going to come in my name, claiming to be Jesus. Beware of that, right? Don't just be quick to say, oh, there's the Messiah. Jesus has come. And you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be a lot of disputes going on. Nation is going to rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And we sure see that happening in our day, don't we? I mean, ethnic groups it's really speaking of against ethnic groups. It's, it's speaking about even nations and, and civil wars happening. I mean, who would have thought we would have seen those kinds of things happening to the degree we do in North America? Of just the civil unrest that we see within our own nations here. It's amazing. And Jesus has predicted those things. And there will be great disasters, famines and, and pestilences, disease and earthquakes in various places. Now he says all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now I think we can look at those things and go check, check, check. Yeah, we've seen all those things happening. But Jesus says those are the beginning of sorrows. Those are the beginning of these, these birth pangs. But more is yet to come. So Jesus lays out what they can expect, and those things that are indeed going to come. But he ends there by saying in verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. I think that's so important for us to keep that perspective. I, I think we as the church, there are, 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 are people that can get so focused on all the trouble, all the calamity, and go, oh, the end is near. Ah, the end is coming. And then get so wrapped up in those things and fail just to say, hold on a second. I don't have to worry about those things. I've got a, a mission. It's to get the good news out, the gospel. I need to keep proclaiming Jesus. I don't want to get bogged down by the things that I see. I don't want to get bogged down by trouble that's coming because Jesus has told us these things are going to come. But Listen, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached. Keep being faithful to share the good news of Jesus. Don't get worried about what you see. The Lord's taking care of all those things. And so, so many times people just get so, so insulated by these things. And they, they, they hover around just with those people that have that same mindset of like, oh, all these things are happening. Look at what's going on in politics. Look at what's going on in this nation. Oh, it's all coming down the pike. We're, we're moving towards the tribulation. Ah, You know what? Don't worry about those things. 
Just be faithful to preach Jesus. Just continue to be a light in this world. The Lord will take care of those things. We don't have to fret. Be a good cheer. He's overcome the world. Now, the shocking thing to see in the Gospels is that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He healed. He showed compassion, right? He ministered to needs, and yet many people rejected him. Why? Because he didn't fit their thinking of what the Messiah would be. So tragically, each gospel shows the subtle disillusionment with and the discrediting of Jesus to where he's crucified. It's all culminating in that story leading to the cross. But it's ultimately why Jesus came. He came to give his life a ransom for all. But we know how the story ends. He rose again victoriously. Matthew's gospel doesn't talk in great deal about the events after the resurrection, but focuses on the Great Commission. How we are to continue on with that gospel message, taking it to a world that desperately needs to hear the good news of a Savior and his salvation. Now, Matthew's gospel, the longest of the gospels, it's followed by Mark, the shortest of the gospels. And Mark is writing to a Roman audience that was all about getting things done. So a key word in Mark's gospel is immediately. It's used some 40 times in this short gospel, immediately, because Mark is about moving through at a rapid rate. He takes us through the life of Jesus at a fast pace, just as I am going to do here tonight. All right? You still with me, everybody? I've got four of you. That's good enough for me. Okay. All right. Y'all with me, everybody? We're going to go through this quickly. Mark, 16 chapters here. Now, none of the gospel writers really identify themselves clearly as to themselves being the, the writer. And so we have to rely a lot on, on, on church history and, and church fathers as to, you know, who the writers of the, the gospels were. So Mark is identified as the, the, the author of this gospel. But then we ask, well, who's Mark? Who is Mark? Well, this is the same John Mark that's spoken of frequently throughout the New Testament. As you look through these various accounts, we begin to get some insight into his life. First, we know that he was the son of a wealthy woman of whose house was used by the early church in Jerusalem. Acts 12, verse 12 talks about that. Secondly, we know that Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first, first missionary trek. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, Mark would have been a very young guy during the ministry of Jesus. And it's believed that he wasn't really even an eyewitness to the ongoing ministry of Jesus. So how does a guy like this record for us an account of Jesus' life? Well, this is where there's another important relationship in Mark's life, and that was his relationship with Peter. So it's believed that Peter, the apostle Peter, was the one that was kind of dictating these things to Mark and, and sharing Peter's account with Mark, and Mark was recording it down. So, it's believed that this is ultimately the gospel according to Peter. In fact, Justin Martyr called it the memoirs of Peter. So, very interesting here. Now, this would also most likely be why, you know, when Mark re records the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Peter lops off the ear of Malchus the servant there, it's not mentioned that it's Peter, right? I'm sure Peter's dictating these things and, and tells Mark, listen, there was one guy that, yeah, you know, foolishly took his sword out and chopped off the ear. Just say he was one of the servants of Jesus. We'll leave it at that. You know, Peter's like, I don't want to talk about that. So 
That could be why. Peter's kind of recording this. John, however, records, and it was Peter that lopped off the ear, and the ear was belonging to Malchus, the servant. And so I want you to have a full account, because John and Peter, I think, like to kind of, you know, give each other. That's why John records when they're running to the tomb, and the disciple whom Jesus loved got to the tomb first. He beat Peter out, right? And so John likes to bring in that human element to those things. And Peter's like, Mark, don't say anything about me. That was bad, all right? So, now there's one scene that's written also in the Garden of Gethsemane that may include a bit of an auto or, or a, a Mark himself here mentioning himself in the narrative, injecting himself in the narrative. It's in Mark 14, verse 50 to 52, and it says, Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So, yeah, I mean, I probably would have wanted to stay anonymous as well without account. But uh, that's the only place it's recorded here is in Mark's gospel. So many believe that this was Mark himself, a young man, that was there, at least in the Garden of Gethsemane, seeing these events unfolding and records this little snippet of, of history to show that he was there in, in some of these scenes here. Now, many believe that Mark was the first gospel written and, and the other gospels kind of use that as the basis of, you know, writing their accounts. And so... Mark most likely wrote anywhere, again, we're not sure, anywhere between 60 to 65 A.D. So here's a bit of an outline of Mark. Mark 1.10, he's going to portray Jesus as the servant living his life in service. And then in Mark 11 to 16, Mark portrays Jesus as the servant giving his life in sacrifice. The key verse there is in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Mark again writing with the Romans in mind to portray Jesus as a suffering servant. Now Mark doesn't record any genealogy of Jesus. As we said earlier, Matthew and Luke do. And John records at least somewhat of the roots of Jesus going all the way back to the beginning, right? But Mark leaves all that out. Now, Mark again, he's picturing Jesus as a servant with the Roman audience in mind. Well, he's going, the Romans, first of all, aren't too concerned about the genealogies, especially that of a servant. That was nothing to them. They don't want to know anything about the lineage of a slave. So Mark just leaves this out because of the intent and the, the purposes of why he's writing this gospel. And Mark doesn't focus on much teaching of Jesus, but rather emphasizes his work, his, his action. As I said, it's a very rapid gospel. You'll see a lot of connecting words like, and, now, then, immediately, straight away, right? All these words kind of Mark using to go from one thing to the next very rapidly, very quickly. It's a fast-paced gospel. This gives the idea that Jesus was busy on mission, always on the move to accomplish the Father's will. And Mark jumped right out of the gates with this in mind. As we begin right off the bat with John the Baptist's ministry in Mark chapter 1. Doesn't get into any part of Jesus' early life. Just moves right to John the Baptist. Again, if he's the first gospel written, it's connecting where we left off in Malachi. Coming of Elijah the prophet. Seen in part through John the Baptist coming onto the scene. Preparing the way for Jesus. So he starts right with John the Baptist. And to give you an idea of Mark's rapid rate of storytelling. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 9 to 15. And notice these words, and then, immediately. Notice how we read this here, and you'll see Mark's kind of heart in writing this this way here. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. It came to pass in those days 
that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you, you begin to see here that John is just moving from one thing to the next. Not filling a lot of details. He doesn't give us the conversation that Jesus had, you know, with Satan as Satan's tempting him in the wilderness. He just moves from one thing to the next to get us right to the purpose that God is going forth here. Where Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So from chapters 1 to 10 of Mark's gospel, we, we look at, at a few teachings of Jesus, various parables and miracles but then mark quickly takes us to the last week of jesus's ministry there in chapter 11 on to the end of the gospel and mark also includes some end times discourse and records something interesting in mark 13 so let's jump all the way to mark 13 as mark has taken us to the last week of jesus's ministry mark 13 verse 28 He says here, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So the fig tree here that Mark mentions that Jesus brings up, as is elsewhere in the Gospels, the fig tree is a, a representation, a symbol of Israel. So basically, Jesus is saying, when you see it budding and bearing fruit, you know that summer is near. Well, many people have seen this as, as being fulfilled in Israel when they became a nation again in 1948. Israel was kind of dead as a nation, but then it began to bud, it began to bear fruit. When they became a nation, they became a, a fruitful nation, even to this day. And he says there, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Well, what is Jesus speaking of by generation? Some believe he's speaking of just the Jewish race as a whole, that the Jewish nation would, would not, you know, fail or cease to be a nation till all those things are fulfilled. Others believe that perhaps the generation was speaking of those that were alive when those signs began to in, uh, take place when Jesus said those things. Some believe it's speaking of the generation that will be alive when these things begin to take place as we've seen here in our recent days. And so many people go, okay, all those that were alive around 1948, well, let's see what's the generation, 60, 70, 80 years. And so we're counting the days and, oh, is it speaking of 1948 or 67 when, you know, they, they took Jerusalem over again. So many people are trying to do all these things. Either way we look at it, I believe that the days are close. And the Lord has given us certain hints and things in his word to show that, listen, when you see these certain kinds of things happening, just know that time is close. Now, I, I personally believe that we're generations living when I believe we'll see the rapture take place. I believe we're seeing things unfolding in, in human history and events taking place that the Bible has 
prophesied that are, are, are just right here before us. I think we're living in that day. But regardless of what happens, if I were to die without the rapture taking place, I don't think I'll be dying and going, Lord, what happened? I thought your word said this. Your word not come true. No, the Lord says, listen, my word will by no means pass away. In other words, his word will always stay true. He'll always stay true to his word. It's, it's going to last. When everything else may be failing, his word will never fail. We'll never have to worry again about, you know, all these things coming to be. It's going to happen. And yeah, we may believe it's going to happen in our day, but if it doesn't, it doesn't change God's word from being fulfilled because he'll fulfill his word perfectly and exactly. So the last half of Mark's gospel primarily centers around the cross of Jesus. In fact, the gospels focus more explicitly on this message than anywhere else in the Bible. Mark, with his fast pace and focus on Christ's servanthood, is a powerful demonstration. Skip Heidzik said this, in all four gospels, only four chapters are spent on Jesus's life before he began his public ministry. 85 chapters deal with the last three and a half years of his life, and 29 of those are spent on the last week. 13 chapters on the day of his execution. See, the cross wasn't an accident or an afterthought, or God's reaction or reacting to Jesus' suffering like it was unanticipated. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The cross was God's plan all along. All Old Testament history anticipates it. All New Testament history looks back to it. And that's what the Gospels are certainly centering on. Yeah, going through the ministry of Jesus, moving from his Galilean ministry, moving towards Jerusalem when he would be arrested, sentenced and put on trial and then taken to the cross. All leading to that culmination where Jesus would pay the fine for all of humanity. When he would take the wrath of God for our sins that he might redeem us, cleanse us, forgive us, and be able to give us new life. It's all centered in and around the cross. The gospels all take great importance in leading us to that and sharing that and showing that Jesus is the one that's come to fulfill all the promises that the Old Testament spoke of and see them all revealed in and through him and accomplished through the work that he did for all of us. We're so glad for that. So that's Matthew and Mark. Next week we'll finish the Gospels looking at Luke and John and continue on going through the New Testament here, the Bible from 30,000 feet. So let's pray. And we'll wrap it up right there. Lord, we thank you that, um, God, you came to this world. Lord, we thank you that you came to reveal who you are, to reveal truth, to reveal that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you came to fulfill that which we couldn't do for ourselves. You came to pay the ultimate price in laying your life down. Lord, Mark's gospel revealed to us that you came to seek and save the lost. You came to give your life as a ransom for all. And we thank you that you've done that. And Lord, I pray that we will continually look to you and the work you've done. That we wouldn't be looking to ourselves or thinking that we need to do more, we need to try harder, but rather look to you and rest in you knowing that you've done it all. And that, as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, the Beatitudes, that we'd simply live out this character, this attitude 
of this kingdom life we enjoy in you and, and because of you, Jesus. So strengthen us, help us, lead us on, Lord. We pray that we would be those that are representing you and spreading this great news, this good news of Jesus Christ. So we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.